0: Hey everybody, it's Pastor Chad. Today is Sunday, January thirty first, two thousand twenty one. Welcome to the the Way Radio live online. If you're watching on Facebook and you have trouble hearing or seeing, please comment, and I will do what I can to correct it. Uh, I only see comments though if you're watching on the Facebook church page, the Way. R12.2 or The Way Ministry on Facebook. If you're watching on my personal page, I don't see those comments till after the broadcast. But let's get into today's message. Today's message is entitled Tribulation and Then Victory. And it's a message that I am excited to preach on. It addresses a topic that I think has been very confusing for people uh, for a very long time. And I'm hoping that this message will help clear up. Uh, any errors of understanding or any doctrinal errors uh, that maybe people have been taking for granted for a long time. So you'll see what I'm talking about as we move forward in the message. Let's uh, pray and we'll get into the sermon. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you once again that we're able to gather here every Sunday online uh, to hear your word, to learn of you, to worship you. And Lord, I just ask today that you would uh, just bless each person that hears this message with your Holy Spirit, uh, that those that know you would be edified and strengthened from your word, uh, would grow in wisdom, knowledge, and understanding. And those that don't know you, Lord, that maybe you would touch their hearts, that you would uh, do a mighty work uh, in them and bring them to faith in Jesus Christ so that they would be saved from the wrath to come and know what it is uh, to have the joy and the peace of Christ. And we just thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So again, the name of the message today, or the title of the message, is Tribulation and then Victory. We're continuing in the book of Revelation. And we're going to be in Revelation uh, chapter one. And we're just going to be discussing one verse today, verse nine. But this is a continuation of the coming storm series that I started uh, a few weeks ago. I think it was five or six weeks ago. And I'm going to continue to hit this topic of the coming storm, uh, which I think applies very much to the times in which we live, uh, the things we're going through in America politically and sociologically uh, and spiritually, because everything really is uh, stems from the spiritual battle that is being waged around us in the spiritual realm and that is carried out on the physical realm. So I hope you enjoy this message. And uh, as usual, I would suggest that you have your Bible open that you take notes and study what you write throughout the week. This is a bit of an intricate message. It's a bit complicated. Um, So, uh, you know, take notes, jot things down, and follow along in the Word. Um, To preface this message, I just want to say that since the book of Revelation inspires us to look forward to Christ's return, to be prepared for that, to be awake, And to be ready, it seems proper that we have a correct understanding of Christ's return and are meeting him in the air or our resurrection right from the beginning of the book of Revelation, that we get a proper perspective of how we are to view these things. And that's why I'm really uh, delving into this one verse that you'll see today. And I think you'll understand why it's so important that we have a proper understanding of it. Um, In this sermon, I'm going to address four main points. And the first one is uh, what's called dispensationalism, as it um, refers to the nation of Israel or the Jews, and then the Gentiles. And you'll understand what I'm talking about as we get into the message. So we're going to address the the dispensational views of the Jews and the Gentiles. We're going to discuss the tribulation that we read of, in scripture, and especially in the book of Revelation. We're going to discuss the resurrection of believers and the return of Christ. And then we're going to discuss pre-tribulation theory, pre-tribulation theory's effect on the message of the gospel. So there's four main sections of this sermon that we're going to hit. And I want to be sure that we're as I'm as clear as possible as I address each point. So, if it tends to drag out a little bit, if it's taking too long, I may separate this into two sermons or three sermons, whatever is needed. So, we'll just see. So, again, we're going to address dispensationalism, Jews and Gentiles, the tribulation, the resurrection of believers, and the return of Christ, and pre tribulation theories' effect on the message of the gospel. So, with that in mind, if you have your Bibles open and you'd like to, Use those. Go ahead. If you'd like to follow along on the screen, uh, let's look at Revelation 1 verse 9, which says, I, John, your brother and fellow partaker in the tribulation and kingdom and perseverance, which are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Now, anybody that's studied Christian history and John's life, we know that he was on the island of Patmos. He was exiled there specifically for the reasons that he lays down in this verse because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Because he was a Christian, he was proclaiming the gospel. He was cast out of society. Rome wanted, the, the Romans wanted nothing to do with him. They were punishing him. So he'd been exiled to the island of Patmos. But that's not really what we're going to focus on in this sermon. What I want to focus on in the sermon is where he says, I, John, your brother and fellow partaker in the tribulation and kingdom and perseverance which are in Jesus. So, why does John refer to himself as your brother and fellow partaker in the tribulation and kingdom and perseverance which are in Jesus? And the words that I want you to really pay attention to are fellow partaker. Well, first of all, brother, fellow partaker, and then tribulation, and then also perseverance. Why is he using this terminology, and why is he saying that he is our partner and partaker in tribulation? It's very, very important that we consider this question. And the question I'll ask you is, how might the statement from John that we just read fit with the popular theory of the pre-tribulation rapture of the church? This is an extremely important question for us to consider. So how does John stating that he's our brother and fellow partaker in the tribulation fit with the very popular theory in the modern church of the pre-tribulation rapture? Now, I'm going to give you a definition, definition of what I mean by the pre-tribulation rapture. It's the theory that Christ will secretly rapture his church prior to the great tribulation at the end of the age. And I believe most Christians are common with it, are, are, are familiar with this theory. And I believe that probably most Christians, uh, there, there's a large majority of Christians that adhere to this theory. So it is something that I think we need to discuss and that we need to address, especially in the times in which we live. Now, one thing I do want to make clear is the pre-tribulation theory was invented in the nineteen in the, in the mid1800s by a man named John Darby. Before that time, this really was not heard of, so this came about in the in the early to mid 1800s, I believe, around the 1830s to early 1840s is when John Darby uh, came up with this theory of the pre-tribulation rapture. Now, that right there should tell you something. Why wasn't it really considered earlier in church history than that point? But let's look at, uh, he says, I John. So he's referring to John, who is the beloved apostle. He walked with Christ. He knew Christ. He had a very special relationship with Christ. He was referred to as the beloved apostle. He's the one that that leaned back and, and spoke to Christ during the Last Supper. You see, he's the one who Christ told him to take care of his mother. When Christ was dying on the cross, he said, behold, your son. And he said to Mary, Or he said to John, behold, your mother. He wanted John to take care of Mary. That's how close him and Christ were. And then he refers to himself as your brother, which tells us that he is a believer. He's a fellow Christian. He is our brother in Christ. So we are related to him spiritually in the body of Christ. But then he says, fellow partaker in the tribulation and kingdom, which are in Christ. Now, that's the word that I really want to focus on today. In the NASB version, he says fellow partaker. In the English Standard Version, the interpretation is partner. In the King James Version, the word is companion. So, your partner in the tribulation, your companion in the tribulation. So, he's saying that he is part of this experience of the tribulation with all believers. Now, that word. Fellow partaker in the original Greek is synkoinos, and that means a co-participant, a companion, or a partaker. So the interpretations that we have are very close to the true to the, to the original Greek word. When we hear that word partaker, now I believe that this verse right here is one of the areas of Scripture that refutes the idea of pre-tribulation rapture. Now, I want to say something right up front. If you believe in pre-tribulation rapture, many Christians nowadays do. When I was younger, I was raised in churches. That's what you were taught, that the Lord is going to secretly rapture his church. Then the Antichrist will be revealed. There'll be seven years of tribulation. Then Christ will come back, and you have Judgment Day, and then his millennial reign, to put it in a very short simple terms but is that the case but what i want to ask you is is if that's what you believe please do not be offended with what i'm addressing today i'm asking you to please listen to what scripture teaches and don't be offended by this message listen to it with an open mind and an open heart and ask yourself what does god's word really teach when it comes to christ's return the resurrection of believers how are we to really understand these teachings from God's Word, not what we may have been taught from a denominational perspective or what maybe a pastor or a parents or whoever whoever might have taught us something. We need to learn of who Christ is. We need to learn of the gospel message and of Christian doctrine from the Word of God. That's how we test everything, and that's what we're doing today. But I do believe this one scripture right here. This is why I'm focusing on John 1 9. It is one of the areas of scripture that questions the pre-tribulation rapture theory and calls us to investigate on whether the pre-tribulation rapture theory is true or false. So let's look at that. First question I'll ask is if Christians were to be spared from tribulation, why does John identify as our fellow partaker in tribulation? Because if we're spared from the seven-year tribulation, why does John talk about being our partner in tribulation? What this tells us is very early in the church, tribulation was already occurring. John was already experiencing it, and he was sharing with us the fact that we would all be experiencing tribulation. Now, the opposing argument is that the rapture is followed by the great tribulation. So those that believe in the pre-trib rapture theory when faced with the argument that I just put forth, we'll say, well, yeah, there's tribulation throughout the history of the church, but there's a final seven-year period, which is the great tribulation. And that argument, I understand where they come from. There's a verse that that, that says great tribulation, but is that correct? And we're going to address that more as we go forward. Another question, is the great tribulation truly a post-rapture period? Is the great tribulation truly after the rapture of the church, or is the tribulation of the church since it began all to be considered the great tribulation? Did the great tribulation begin with the beginning of the church? And I believe the latter to be the case. The great tribulation has been occurring since the birth of of the church and will intensify prior to Christ's return, which is probably what is beginning now. Now, I want you to think of this. We are told in Scripture to endure. I'm starting to give you scriptural evidence to show that the post-tribulation rapture theory really needs to be analyzed and questioned. We are told in Scripture to endure. If you look at Matthew 24, 13 and Mark 13, 13, they say, but the one who endures to the end, he will be saved. And Mark thirteen thirteen, you will be hated by all because of my name. But the one who endures to the end, he will be saved. If we're if we are to be spared from tribu- tribulation, why are we encouraged in Scripture to endure? What must we endure if we're not to experience tribulation? Very important questions to consider. Now, like I said before, the pre-tribulation rapture theory is very popular. And again, I don't want you to be offended, but this is true. The pre-tribulation rapture theory is very popular. However, there are no scriptures in support of it, and there are many scriptures which strongly contradict it. And that's what I'm going to show you guys today. So I want you to really pay attention and to listen to this, because like I said, this is a very, very important thing for us to understand in the modern church and it affects our relationship with Christ. It affects how we proclaim the gospel. It affects our view of how we see ourselves and our salvation in Christ. So this can have an effect on our overall Christian faith if we don't view this topic correctly. So it's very important. And the reason I reiterate that point is because for years— Christians have not wanted to discuss this topic. Someone will say, well, I'm post-trib or mid-trib, and I'm pre-trib, and they'll say, well, it's non essential. We're all saved, so let's not argue about it. I do believe that this is an important doctrine, and while it is not essential, the the essential thing is that we, we place our faith and our trust in Christ and His imputed righteousness for salvation, but this does have such an effect on the church at large and on us as individual believers that I think it's very, very important that we pay attention to this and to try to grasp the true biblical teaching and to have a correct biblical understanding of what will take place upon Christ's return when he comes back for his church. And another point I want to make here is my argument through this sermon, will hopefully be very thorough, but it's by no means exhaustive. There's a lot more information that I could provide, but we would literally be here for weeks if I just went through the whole Bible and and used more and more biblical evidence to make the case really against the pre-tribulation theory. So I'm just trying to, to get you guys to really consider this, to understand the points that I'm making from a biblical perspective, then do some investigation on your own and see what you come up with. Now, first of all, regarding dispensationalism or the dispensation of the Jews and the dispensation of the Gentiles, what do I mean by that? There are many that believe, uh, we all understand that the Jews were the chosen people of God. The Jews were the people that God blessed to bring to, to proclaim his law. Jesus came from Judaism. They were God's chosen people. And many believe that there's a dispensation for the Jews where they move through history as one group of people. And then the church, after Christ's Crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension, and the church was born, that the Jewish people and the church moves separately through history until we reach that seven-year tribulation period, and that is the time in which the Jews will be brought to faith in Christ. So you've got two separate dispensations. I do not believe that that's the case, and I'll show you biblically why I don't agree with that. What I believe is the Jewish people were used to bring in the Messiah. He came through Judaism. He was born a Jew. The message of the gospel was also given to the Gentiles because what happened, the Jews rejected it mostly. Some believe, but not all. You could say predominantly the nation of Israel, the Jewish people rejected Christ as the Messiah. That's obvious. So the message of the gospel was proclaimed to the Gentiles. But what happened is you could sort of look at history as the Jews and then the Gentiles in the world. And when the cross came, they joined together as the church believers and became one. And I'll show you scriptural proof of that right here. So the point I'm trying to make is that the church and Israel are one the remnant of Jews will come to faith in Christ at the end of the age when the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. So the point I'm trying to make here is that Jews are already coming to Christ. There have been Jews that have come to Christ through history, but close to the second return of Christ, when he returns for his church on that final day at the end of this age, we will see that the fullness of the Gentiles has been brought in. And then we see this fruitful preaching of the gospel to the Jewish people, when we'll see a large number of Jews coming to faith in Christ. Okay? Consider this verse here. And I apologize if this is confusing. These are some difficult doctrines to address, but but consider this verse. Romans 11, 24 through 25. For if you were cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree, and were grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree. He's talking to the Gentiles. This is Paul writing to the Roman Gentiles. How much more will these who are the natural branches, meaning the Jews, be grafted into their own olive tree? For I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery, so that you will not be wise in your own estimation, that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Exactly what I was just speaking about. Now, pre-tribulation theory claims that the Jews will come to faith during the seven-year tribulation after the church is raptured. So, they, like I said, they believe that there is two dispensations, the Jewish disp- dispensation and the Gentile dispensation. Is that biblical? Are Jews and Gentiles two separate entities, you could say, or two separate people? Or are we one, if you're a Jewish believer or a Gentile believer, are you one in Christ? Very, very important for us to get this straight and to understand this. And I think the best place for us to get a picture of what the truth of this is biblically is in the book of Ephesians, chapter 2, verses 11 through 22. And I'm sorry, there's a lot of Scripture today because this is very, very important. So I've really used a lot of Scripture to make these points. So Ephesians and elsewhere in Scripture teaches that the true Israel is spiritual, the body of Christ made up of both Jews and Gentiles. And the thing here that really helps you understand this is the difference between physical and spiritual, okay? Physical and spiritual. Obviously, there are Jewish people who were born physically, into the tribe of Israel, into into Judaism. Gentiles are not. But we're not talking about physical lineage here. We're talking about spiritual birth. So let's look at Ephesians 2, 11 through 22. Therefore, remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, he's talking about physical, the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, meaning Jewish people or or Israel, which is performed in the flesh by human hands, remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. So he's given us a picture of Judaism was God's chosen people. If you were not in the Jewish faith, you were outside of Christ. You were lost in the world. But now in Christ, you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall. By abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross by it having put to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to those who were far away, Gentiles and peace to those who were near the Jews. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the father. So then you, meaning Gentiles, are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. So Paul is telling us in the book of Ephesians here that the Jews and Gentiles have become one man in Christ, one race, one church. You see? That's what Paul's getting across. So if you are a true believer in Christ, you are part of the true spiritual Israel. It says in Scripture that the true children of Abraham are not of the seed or the flesh, but are of the Spirit. You see? So, the true Israel are the true believers in Christ. So, Jew doesn't matter if you're Jewish or Gentile. Talking about one new creation in Christ. Very, very important for us to understand. Now, notice in verse 14, he says the barrier of the dividing wall. So, he gives us this visual of this wall that's existed down through history, separating the Jews from every other person in the world, from every other type of person in the world, or every other. Uh, race. You see, there was a dividing wall, but we're given a picture of that because it refers to the courts of the temple in Jerusalem. Consider that in the temple, a wall separated Gentiles and Jews and Gentiles could not enter the inner court where sacrifices were made. All through Jewish history, the only people that could enter into the inner most sacred parts of the temple were Jewish people. The Gentiles were not allowed to enter in there. But it says Christ has taken that wall away and joined us together. So we get another picture of that joining together. Now, as sort of a side note here, verse 20 says, Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. This doesn't have a lot to do with today's message, but I just wanted to make this point because of a problem that we see in so much of the modern church. If you spend any time on social media, you'll see people identifying themselves as apostles and prophets. I'm apostle, Bill, whatever. I'm apostle, prophet, Sam, whatever. I have this prophecy for you. I have apostolic gifts. Those are clear signs of false teachers and people that probably have no understanding of what the Bible actually teaches. This verse here shows But the fact that the apostles and prophets make up the foundation of the church is an indicator that these offices have passed away. That's why there's that word, the, the apostles and prophets. He's referring to those apostles and prophets down through history, down through Judaism, who prophesied the coming Messiah, prophesied the coming gospel message of Jesus Christ. That was the foundation that the church is built on, and since the foundation has been laid, there is no longer any need for apostles and prophets in the church. Now, I have been told, and I and I saw it in one of their uh, Bibles that they've corrupted. Is the Mormon Church removes that word "the" in Ephesians six twenty from their King James version that they use because? If you put the apostles and prophets, it's automatically pointing to those Old Testament apostles and prophets, and it negates or nullifies anything that Joseph Smith said. So they had to get rid of that word, the. Whether they still do that or not, I'm not sure, but I had a friend who had come out of Mormonism show that to me. So they can just say apostles and prophets because then if you take the out, it's not really pointing at anything, anyone in particular, and it leaves it open to anyone that wants to claim to be an apostle and prophet. So another very important teaching for us to pay attention here. But back to the point I was making, let's look at Galatians 3, 14 and 16, and then verses 28 through 29, that reiterates the point that the Jews and Gentiles in Jesus Christ have become one man. In order that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we would receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. The promise made to Abraham, to the Jewish people, we receive as Gentiles through faith in Jesus Christ. Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. Very important thing to look at here. He does not say, and to seeds, as referring to many, but rather to one. And to your seed, that is Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free man, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to promise. So I think that very well, without argument, makes clear that there are no longer two different dispensations of Jewish people and Gentile people the true spiritual Israel, those that have received the promises that were made to Abraham, receive those promises in Christ, because he is the seed that's being referred to when the promise was made to Abraham. That's why it was seed singular instead of seeds plural. He was talking about the one seed, the Messiah. And if we have faith in him, we are blessed with the promises made to Abraham, and we are part of the true spiritual Israel. Now, the next point regarding the tribulation, we are told in scripture that we will experience tribulation. So if we're thinking that there's going to be this seven-year tribulation and Christ is going to come and secretly take his church away from the earth before that tribulation begins, we really have a, a big problem because we are told as Christians that we will experience tribulation. Let's look at John 16, 33. The, the words of Christ himself, these things I have spoken to you, so that in me you may have peace. in Christ we have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but take courage, I have overcome the world. So Christ tells us, we will have tribulation. And then let's look at Revelation 7:14. I said to him, my Lord, you know, And he said to me, these are the ones who come out of the great, that's where we get this term, the great tribulation, and they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. And like I said, they're referring to it as the great tribulation, but I firmly believe that the great tribulation began at the beginning of the church. And that's why John said, I, John, your brother and partaker in the tribulation. He was experiencing the great tribulation. Christians down through history have experienced it. And it will intensify as we grow closer to the day that the Lord returns. Now, for Americans, that word tribulation sort of seems seems enigmatic and something that we don't fully comprehend. But I really think it's insulting when American or Western Christians that live in a very comfortable society where everything we want is at our fingertips... Says we're not going to experience tribulation when there are Christians dying all over the world, suffering and dying and being killed simply because they place their faith in Christ. There are countries all over this world where, as soon as you accept, as soon as you place your faith and your trust in Jesus Christ, and you proclaim that, you automatically lose your standing in society, your family abandons you, you are cast out of your life completely, if not killed. So how are you going to go to those kind of places and tell people the tribulation has not started when their lives are constantly filled with tribulation because they bear the name of Christ? Something to really think about. Another point I want to make here. And this is a huge mistake that's made in so much of the church. Because why? Because the gospel has been watered down for so many years now. And we don't want to talk about God's wrath. We don't want to talk about the total depravity of man. We don't want to talk about the fact that we are dead in our sins and trespasses. It's easier to tell people that, you know, just give Jesus a try. He's the greatest thing ever. All your dreams will come true. What are we saved from in Jesus Christ? Very important question. And I remember when I was a kid listening to pastors preach about pre-tribulation, we're going to be taken up and there's going to be this time of tribulation. I believe that if I, if I accepted Christ, that I was going to be saved from that tribulation and that suffering during that seven-year period. You see? So you can see how that message, when it's not presented correctly, can really lead someone into a false understanding of the gospel message and why we need to place our trust in Christ. But what are we told in Scripture? We are told that we are saved from the wrath of God, not from tribulation. So this is a common error that I believe has led people astray for many, many years now, for generations now. People think they accept Christ so that they're not going to suffer in hell and they're not going to have to deal with suffering from in tribulation. No, we accept Christ because we, he saves us from the wrath of God. That's what he bore on the cross for us. God poured out his wrath on the Son, and the Son did that so that we wouldn't have to have God's wrath poured out on us if we had placed our faith and our trust in Christ. And we stand in his imputed righteousness. You see, we are saved from God's wrath, not from tribulation. Look at Romans 5 9. Much more then, having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. The point that I just made, made much more eloquently by Paul in Scripture. So, now let's look at the next point. If we're talking about tribulation, we're talking about Christ's return. We need to discuss the resurrection of believers and the return of Christ. What's going to happen on that day? How will the resurrection of believers take place? And what does it mean when Christ returns? What is that event going to be like? That's what we look forward to as Christians. All this turmoil that we experience in the world now, all the craziness that's going on. The persecution that we see coming, the tribulation that seems to be growing in the world, as these things happen, we're looking forward to the return of Christ. Let's try to have a correct understanding of what's going to happen on that day. And what I want you to understand is that the Bible teaches us that Christ will return for His church. Now, we just learned that His church are those who have been brought to faith through the message of the gospel who are in Christ, whether Jew or Gentile. That's the church. We are told in scripture that Christ will return for for his church or for his bride. Both The church is referred to as his bride. We are nowhere in scripture told that he will return for part of his church, and then he'll come back for the rest of the church seven years later. That's not in scripture. Nowhere in Scripture does it say Christ is going to come, he's going to have a secret rapture, he's going to take a portion of the church, and then seven years later, he's going to come back and save the rest of the church. No, it says he's going to return for his church. Now, another point I want to make is Christ will return as a victorious king, and this is very important to getting a proper understanding of what you could call the rapture of the church. I like to just look at it as the final day resurrection, and Christ, Christ's return. Christ will return as a victorious king entering his kingdom. Now, I think this is what will really help you guys see the point that I'm trying to get across here. This is very important to pay attention to. And if you have any questions about any of this, please email me during the week, chad at the way, the letter R, 122.org, because this I I believe is a very, very important teaching, especially as we're going to be going through the book of Revelation, and these topics and questions will come up over and over again as we work through the book of Revelation. So to begin, let's look at Matthew 24, verses 29 through 31, and we're given this explanation by Christ of what His return will be like. And he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of the sky to the other. So explain to me how that fits in with a pre-tribulation rapture when it says, But immediately after the tribulation of those days. Also, how could it be a secret rapture if there is the sound of a trumpet and all the tribes of the earth will see Christ coming? So again, you're seeing these huge inconsistencies if you try to believe the pre-tribulation rapture theory. Now, I want, remember I said Christ will return and he's going to return as a king, returning victoriously into his kingdom. Let's look at that point. More closely, let's let's just think about that and analyze that. What happened prior to Passion Week at the end of Christ's ministry? It said he set his face towards Jerusalem. He knew why he was going to Jerusalem. He was going to be tried falsely. He, He was going to be betrayed, put on trial falsely, condemned, crucified, killed. Raised three days later, and then he would ascend. But what happened is Christ approached Jerusalem before this started. What happened? The people came out and praised him, and then they entered the city with him. So picture Jerusalem. We've all seen pictures of it the big wall around Jerusalem. Christ is coming in on a donkey, and the people go out. They meet him. They're praising, they're saying praise to Hosanna in the highest. They're, They're putting palm fronds in front of him, they're treating him like royalty. As a king, they're welcoming him, and then they're ushering him into Jerusalem. That's that's how Christ came into Jerusalem. Now consider that in ancient times, when a king returned victoriously from war, as he approached his kingdom, his subjects would come out to welcome him, and then they would march with him victoriously into his kingdom, just like we just heard about Christ. So, what I'm saying is, when Christ came into Jerusalem that that time, prior to Passion Week, he was prefiguring, in a way, how he will return victoriously on the final day. At the resurrection, those who have died in Christ will rise, and then those who are alive in Christ will together meet the Lord in the air and usher him into his kingdom victoriously and the unsaved will be resurrected to face judgment and the wrath of God. So those that adhere to the pre-tribulation rapture theory, they believe that the Lord raptures his church, you meet him in the clouds, you go away to heaven with him. That is nowhere taught in the scripture. No, we go to meet him because he is, we're ushering him into his kingdom. He's marching with his army of believers into his kingdom to take possession, and to cast out the forces of evil that have been existing in it for too long. He's taking possession of his kingdom. That's why it says he comes like a thief. Satan thinks this is his domain, and for right now, in a way it is. He's called the prince of this world. Christ is the king, and he's kicking out the prince that is traitorous and against him. You see? So at the resurrection, I'll reiterate this point. Those who have died in Christ will rise And then those who are alive in Christ will together meet the Lord in the air and usher him into his kingdom victoriously. The unsaved will be resurrected at the same time to face judgment and the wrath of God. It's that simple. That's why the Bible always talks about this age and the age to come. Not this age, then a seven-year age, and then a a thousand-year millennial reign age, and then the final age. It's this age and the age to come. And we're going to address the the millennium later on in, in Revelation. Now, to reiterate my point, Let's look at Daniel 12, 1 and 2. And then 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 through 18. Daniel 12, 1 and 2 says, Now at that time, Michael, the great prince who stands guard over the sons of your people, will arise. And there will be a time of distress, such as never occurred since there was a nation until that time. And at that time, your people, everyone who is found written in the book, will be rescued. So now, Not just those after a seven year tribulation, not just those prior to a tribulation, everyone who is found written in the book will be rescued. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake, these to everlasting life, but the others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. So again, you've got a huge contradiction here if you think part of the church is raptured and then the rest of the church later. No, it says when Michael, when they gather, it says, your people, everyone who is found written in the book of life will be rescued, everyone, the entire church. Then look at First Thessalonians 4, 16 through 18. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. So, again, the pre trib theory adherents think that when it says we will meet the Lord in the air and always be with Him, that we're always, that He's taking us away to heaven for seven years. It doesn't say that, folks. That is such a huge mistake. Now, I'm going to show you from the original Greek an even stronger argument to back up what I'm trying to get across right now. Look at verse 17. Uh, from, Dan- from Thessalonians 4, 16 through 18, verse 17 says, Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds. This is the key word, to meet, and then the Lord in the air, to meet. That word in the original Greek that Paul used when he wrote that is is a word, uh, is the Greek word, Antesis or anantesis, I forget the exact pronunciation. And it means encounter or to meet. So anantesis means encounter or to meet. Pre-tribulation theory assumes that believers are secretly raptured, meet the Lord in the air, and then go to heaven with him. The scriptures nowhere teach this. And that word anantesis impl- implies explicitly the opposite. If you study that Greek word in scripture, it means exactly the opposite of meeting the Lord in the air and then going away with him. And I'll prove that right here. First of all, let's look at a quote from F.F. Bruce on this argument that we're talking about today. He says, when a dignitary paid an official visit or a perusia, which in Greek means presence or arrival or official visit, Christ's perusia to a city in Hellenistic times, the action of the leading citizens in going out to meet him and escorting him on the final stage of his journey was called the, the anatesis. So again, we've got a precedent in history where this word reiterates what I've just been talking about. anatesis, going out to meet the Lord and usher him back into his kingdom. One thing I really like about here is is the action of the leading citizens in going out to meet him. The leading citizens on Judgment Day, on Christ's return, will be the church. You see? Because everyone else will be condemned if they're not in Christ. So that quote, again, helps make the point that I'm trying to make here. But now let's take it even further. Let's look at this word where it's used two other times in the New Testament, where the word anathesis is used elsewhere in Scripture. The first one is Matthew 25, 6 through 10. This gives us the proper context to see how Paul, uh, to see how it was used in Matthew, and then in the book of Acts. So let's look at Matthew 25, 6 through 10. But at midnight, there was a shout, behold, the bridegroom, come out to meet him, Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. The foolish said to the prudent, give us some of your oil for our lamps are going out. But the prudent answered, no, there will not be enough for us and you too. Go instead to the dealers and buy some for yourselves. And while they were going away to make the purchase, the bridegroom came and those who were ready went in with him to the wedding feast and the door was shut. So they're waiting for the bridegroom. The bridegroom, who is Christ, obviously, Returns, they go out to meet him. As they're going out to meet him, those that realize that they have not been responsible, that they have rejected Christ, they have not trimmed their lamps and set aside oil, so they're not prepared, they have not accepted the message of the gospel, they're scrambling to try to figure out what to do. The believers go out, meet the bridegroom, and then what does it say? Went in with him to the wedding feast, come back in to the wedding feast and shut the door. And that word. And is the Greek word that's used where it says, uh, Behold the bridegroom come out to meet him. You see? That's where that verse, that's where that word is used right there. It's used again in Acts 28, 14 through 15. There were found some brethren and were invited to stay with, and, and we're invited to stay with them for seven days, and thus we came to Rome. This is Paul's journey to Rome. And the brethren, when they heard about us, came from there as far as the market of Appius and three ends to meet us. And when Paul saw them, he thanked God and took courage. They came out, they met Paul. He uses that same word. They met him and they ushered him into Rome. So two other instances of that word in scripture is going out to meet the traveler that's returning or or coming to a place and come back with them. So scripture very much attests to the point that I'm making. When Christ appears in the clouds, the dead in Christ will rise first. Those that are alive in Christ at that time will meet. We'll all meet together in the air with, with our Savior, our King, and we will march with Him victoriously into His kingdom, and that will be judgment day. Fascinating study right there. It shows the importance of taking the time to research what the original languages of Scripture say, if you're confused on something, or if you have a, uh, if you're arguing with somebody because they believe something differently than you do, go to the original languages. It's easy to do nowadays with nowadays with all the software that's available. Now I want you to look at Second Thessalonians two, one through twelve, because this speaks directly of Christ's return. The rapture and the tribulation. This is a big portion of scripture, so bear with me. But let's look at this. Second Thessalonians 2 1 through 12. Now we request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, again, that you not be quickly shapen from your composure or be disturbed either by a spirit or a message or a letter as if from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one in any way deceive you, for it will not come unless the apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. So we are clearly taught here that the Antichrist will be revealed before Christ's return. Christians who are alive upon Christ's return will witness the Antichrist who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of the cl- of God, displaying himself as being God. This is very important. There have been Christians for years who are obsessed with everything that takes place with the temple in Jerusalem. Folks, when Christ gave up the spirit, when he died on the cross, when he said, it is finished, he gave up the spirit and the curtain in the temple was torn in two and the rock split and there was an earthquake the temple in Jerusalem became meaningless it's not needed any further it was a prefigure of the temple that is Jesus Christ the temple that is his body the church so what i believe this tells us is the antichrist will appear to be an upstanding member of the church not the temple you see because the church is the temple do you not remember And and obviously, the other point I have to make is the Pope is a form of Antichrist. That's been clear for years. But there will be, I believe, the ultimate Antichrist. There's the spirit of Antichrist that has existed in many individuals down through history. Right now, probably the greatest picture of that is the Pope and and the Roman hierarchy, the the Roman Catholic Church. But there will be a final man of sin, a man of lawlessness, and I believe that he will appear to be very much a part of the modern Christian church. And if you look at the state of the modern Christian church, you can't argue that that's a very feasible possibility. Look at how many people look at Donald Trump as an example of a Christian, and he surrounds himself with false teachers. You see? And it's like I've said before, I'm not picking on him. I believe that he probably needs to hear the true uncompromised gospel message with Jesus Christ. And if we're going to pray for him, we need to pray that that gets to him and that he is made aware that he has been influenced by false teachers that are around him. Very important. So it says who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object object of worship so that he takes a seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. Do you not remember that while I was still with you, I was telling you these things? And you know what restrains him now so that in his time he will be revealed. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. Then that lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. He will slay him with the breath of his mouth. That is his word, the gospel. He can't stand against it and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. That is the one whose coming is in accord with the activity of Satan, with all power and signs and false wonders. And with all the deception of wickedness for those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. For this reason, God will send upon them a deluding influence so that they will believe what is false in order that they all may be judged who did not believe the truth, but took pleasure in wickedness. Now, when I hear that and I hear about the false signs and wonders, considering that this false Christ will try to take his place in the temple, which is the church. I've got to be very concerned about the New Apostolic Reformation movement and churches like Bethel. They are the perfect breeding ground for this type of thing. Think about that. So the above scriptures that I just shared speak of Christ's return, the rapture, and tribulation. And these scriptures clearly attest to post-tribulationism. Christ's return and the gathering of his elect occurs After the final tribulation. That's taught all through Scripture. Like I said at the beginning, you can go all through Scripture, and the only way you're going to justify a pre tribulation rapture theory is by twisting Scripture and taking things out of context. And the other big problem that you're going to have the thing that you're going to have to do is you're going to have to look at the book of Revelation literally rather than symbolically. And that's a really big error that quite a few people make for years. It's been a big problem in the church. The book of Revelation is apocryphal language that's meant to be symbolic unless it is clearly literal or it's told to be taken literally. So all through scripture, when we read Genesis up until the book of Revelation, the whole rest of the Bible, we are to read it literally unless it is obviously symbolic or we are told it's symbolic. The book of Revelation is the opposite. It is a book where we are given very rich symbolism of things that are going to happen to the church down through history, how things are going to work out according to God's plan. And John was shown all these symbolic images of that. But for years, people have been wanting to take that symbolism literally. The other error people make is they want to look at things chronologically. Revelation is not a chronological book. and We'll get into this more, but just be aware of that as well. So I think you'll agree, if you really look at the things I've shared, the scriptures that I've put forth, you cannot substantiate pre-tribulation rapture from a scriptural viewpoint. Scripture clearly teaches that there is this age, the age to come, and that tribulation happens. It intensifies prior to the coming of Christ. Seven years simply means completion. Seven is a symbolic number. All through scripture means it is finished, it is completed. So once that tribulation is intensified and it's run its course according to God's will and plan, the Lord will return. Now my last point, and this regards the pre-tribulation theory's effect on the message of the gospel. This is extremely important. The message of the gospel, the fact that we are dead in our sins and trespasses, we are born corrupt, our hearts are depraved, Jeremiah 17, 9 says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? And if we understand that we have broken God's law, we have no right to stand before him. We stand condemned and we have no ability to save ourselves. And that the only ability, the only way that we are ever going to be saved is by understanding that we must place our trust and our faith in the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ and be washed by his blood, have our sins washed washed away by the blood of Christ and his righteousness imputed to us. That message must abide in our hearts. And I'm afraid that this post-tribulation theory, which is a huge error, affects that proclamation of the gospel. Why is that? First of all, it seems, and I've looked at this through church history, it seems that pre-tribulation and a rejection of God's sovereign election go hand in hand. One thing I've noticed is those that understand the sovereignty of God, that accept His doctrine of election, that accept uh, the five points of Christian doctrine that I've gotten into before, that really understand God's perfect sovereign plan, they will reject pre-tribulation theory. Why? Because so many... Look at that seven-year tribulation period. The church is raptured. Then there's a seven-year tribulation period. And all the people that are left behind have a second chance. Now they can be convinced to accept Christ. That's a common viewpoint in the church. I remember thinking that when I was younger. When I was you know, drinking and doing drugs and all the terrible lifestyle I was leading, I remember thinking, well, if, I, if I'm not a Christian, if I'm not saved, at least I've got that seven-year second chance. That's that's a logical conclusion that you can come to. So just think of that effect on the gospel message and how it's received. You see? Those who accept the pre-trib theory believe that during the seven-year tribulation, people will have a second chance to accept Christ, not understanding that we only believe because we have already been accepted in Christ and born again in him. You only come to believe. You are only you only have faith in Christ. You only repent because you have already been born again in Christ. You're born again before you realize you're born again. Otherwise, you wouldn't be able to understand the gospel, to have faith, to repent, and to place your trust in Christ. We cannot convince someone to make a decision for or accept Christ. You just can't do it. Only the Holy Spirit can do it. And again, you've got that big problem. Is Christ coming back for part of his church? And then the rest later? It doesn't say that in Scripture. He's coming back for his church. And not one will be lost. Romans 5.17. Whoops, I missed a verse there. Sorry. I missed a couple of them. Sorry about that, you guys. Romans 5.17 says, Therefore, accept one another, just as Christ also accepted us to the glory of God of God. Christ accepts us. We don't accept him. We believe in him and trust trust him because he has accepted us and came to save us. Another point I want to make referring to the gospel is the fact that often one corruption of doctrine will affect, affect other doctrines. The leaven of compromise and corruption spreads. That's why if you look throughout the the modern church, and you look at the denominations that believe in pre-tribulation rapture, and then you look at the doctrines that they teach, you'll see either very thin doctrine and more of an entertainment-based Christianity, or no doctrine at all, or doctrines that are corrupted. But if you see churches that are very grounded in Scripture, that have a firm foundation in the Word of God, and their doctrines are solid, they reject reject pre-tribulation rapture. You can study it. Go on church websites and look at their statements of faith. The idea that believers will be spared from tribulation creates, this is a big one, creates apathy and decreases our fervency and zeal for the message of the gospel. For the unsaved in the visible church who are on the fence, the idea of seven years for a second chance lessens the sense of urgency in the message of the gospel. Probably everybody that's anybody that's been a Christian for any amount of time has heard a Christian say, "I'm just so glad the Lord's going to take us away before things get really bad." No, that right there is apathetic. That means I'm just going to kick back, I'm just going to chill until the Lord returns, and because things are getting a little crazy. No, the Lord will save us from the battlefield, not from the sidelines. See, so he's trying to see how an improper understanding of Christ's return. And this false understanding that there's pre-tribulation rapture, that we're saved from tribulation, can have a severe effect on how you proclaim the gospel and how you view the gospel and how you might accept the gospel. Because there are people in the church, I know it for a fact, that do not take the gospel seriously because they think, well, yeah, seven years tribulation is going to be tough, but at least I, I know then for sure that Christianity is true because all the Christians disappeared. So I'll accept in then. Folks, I had that go through my head, like I said, earlier in my life. So you can see the effect it has on the gospel. I'm going to close with 1 Thessalonians 5, 1 through 11. And I'm sorry, I went too fast and I lost it on the screen. So I'll read it to you. Now as to the times and the epochs, brethren, you have no need of anything to be written to you. For you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. While they are saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly like labor pains upon a woman with child, and they will not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness that the day would overtake you like a thief. For you are all sons of light and sons of day. We are not of night nor of darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us be alert and sober. For those who sleep, do their sleeping at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we are of the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we will live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build up one another, just as you also are doing. Follow Paul's teaching right there and you will be fine. Folks, again, if this was confusing, I apologize. Uh, it's a very complicated topic to address, but I think it's a topic that is quite often neglected and people don't want to get into because they think they're going to offend people. But I think you'll understand, you'll agree, with it has an effect on how we view the gospel. It has an effect on our faith. And I think we have to understand the truth of what's going to happen upon Christ's return and how we are to look forward to that and understand that as Christians, we will face tribulation, but it teaches, we'll see it as we move through the book of Revelation. He will protect us through tribulation. He promises to bring us through it. So it's not like we're just going to be tortured for seven years. And like I said, that seven years is symbolic. You see, tribulation has existed since the beginning of the church. But he says he will seal his saints with his name and we will be protected from the time of tribulation. Okay, so have faith in God, stand firm in him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just thank you so much for your word, for your message. Uh, Lord, we just ask that you would strengthen each one of us, that you would edify us, and that we would have a proper understanding of your plan of salvation and how you are working things out in history. Uh, Lord, I just ask that you would uh, guide us in the coming week, that you'd open doors of opportunity for us to share the gospel, and that your word would go forth powerfully, and it would all be to your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, Folks, if you'd like to visit our website, just go to the way, the letter R, 122.org. All of my sermons are also published as a podcast the following week, usually on Tuesday or Wednesday, sometimes later, depending on how busy I am. Um, you can find the podcast at the Christian Podcast Community Dot org, and then just look for The Way Radio on there. There's a lot of great Christian podcasts in the Christian podcast community, but that's who hosts it for me. Uh, you can also find us on YouTube. Just search for The Way Ministry Church. I'm going to be transferring to another uh, platform from YouTube gradually over the next month or so, because uh, it's becoming very clear that probably anything to do with Christianity will be deleted from YouTube before too long, um, we are very much praying about and looking at the opportunity of opening a Bible training center in Kenya. Uh, it looks like we will probably be doing that in Nairobi. I'm talking to a friend of mine who is in ministry. We are, we are considering joining forces in this project, uh, but I'll be honest with you right now, with the COVID epidemic, our funding has dropped off Radically, and we need all the help we can get. I do feel like the Lord is opening this door for us, and that He will lead people uh, to us that will help us in this. So please consider donating to the ministry. Uh, you can make a one time donation. What really, help, what really helps is if you're willing to uh, sign up for monthly donations. So please pray about that. And you can do that at the WAY, the letter R122.org. You can donate there. And I have also started a side business to help uh, better support my family, to also help support uh, some of the people in Kenya. We're importing products from Kenya that we are uh, helping design and construct. And if you'd be interested in seeing that, just go to elephantwalk.net. That's the name of that new endeavor. If you could please pray for that as well. Um, I'm real excited about it. But like I said, with with funding dropping off so severely, um, sometimes you have to re-strategize and figure out new ways of doing things. So uh, we decided to go ahead and, and launch a business on the side uh, to help support the family, the ministry, and the people that we work with in Kenya. Again, thank you so much for watching. I appreciate it. And we will be back here next Sunday, same time, same place. God bless you guys. Take care. Bye-bye.